Section 5 of the Book of Famous Sieges. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephen Seidel. The Book of Famous Sieges by Tudor Jinks. The Siege of Babylon, 538 B.C. If we were to tell about the siege of Babylon by Cyrus, only those facts wise men of today are willing to accept, the story would be a brief one indeed. More than five hundred years before Christ this siege took place, and those were not days of exact history. The accounts that come to us were largely mixed with fables and with bits of stories gathered from tradition. Which are true and which are false, there is nothing to show. That the city was taken by Persians, there is ample evidence. Probably the general way of taking it is correctly stated, though some say that it was another than Cyrus who used the plan, and the little anecdotes of his doings at the time may or may not be true. The story of his early life is not unlike that of Romulus or of Oedipus, the grandson of a king ordered to be left exposed to die because of the prophecy that he should take his grandfather's throne. Cyrus was brought up by a shepherd or a herdsman, and only in manhood came back to the court. He became a king, 559 B.C., and was still a young man when, in command of the Persians, he set forth to conquer the mighty fortress city Babylon, then ruled by King Belshazzar. It is difficult for us to determine just how lofty were the walls and how strong the defenses of this ancient city. Instead of telling us accurately about such matters, the older historians tell how Cyrus, while on the march toward the city, arrives at a little river and is aroused to a mighty wrath against it because one of his sacred white horses is drowned in crossing the stream. Like an angry child, the Persian king vows that the river shall no more run and sets his great army to digging three hundred and sixty canals, into which he drains the river, leaving its bed dry. Arriving at Babylon in the spring of that year, he fights a cavalry battle with the Babylonian outposts, who soon retreat within the walls, close the gates, and settle down inside, confident that no human power could overcome their defenses, which were now at their full height, and probably far stronger than when Ninus took the city. When Cyrus's army was drawn up around the enormous circuit of the widespread city, it looked so small as to excite the derision of the Babylonians gazing indifferently upon it from the battlements of their lofty walls. And apparently they were justified. The ordinary way of taking cities at that time was to build a mound high enough to raise the besiegers to a level with the tops of the walls. Now and then, if wood was plentiful, great towers were used instead of lofty mounds. To destroy these mounds or towers, the besieged people would dig great mines below them, that the structures might fall in. Or, when besiegers were ready to climb over the walls, they were met with boiling water, burning oil, or pitch, while showers of stones and arrows came from both sides and were received upon great shields. If the mound or tower could not be destroyed, at least the besieged could build towers of their own opposite the threatened points and could raise these as fast as the besiegers raised theirs. 
The walls of Babylon, as we have already noted, are said to have been upward of 300 feet high at the very least, and we can understand the amused smile with which the Babylonian aristocrats looked down upon the feeble Persian force that crept, ant-like, along the great flat plains far below them. Cyrus, however, was not such a commander as those against whom the Babylonians had fought before. He had with him the most valuable military engine in the world, a bright and ingenious brain, and he soon succeeded by strategy where forces might have been despised. When cities could not be taken, the commanders were accustomed to blockade, that is, to build ramparts around on every side, and then, in camping, to wait until the provisions inside the city were consumed and starvation delivered the inhabitants into their hands. The Babylonians judged by what they saw that Cyrus had adopted this plan, for, as they took their usual outings in their chariots upon the broad driveway along the walls, they could see the busy Persians digging a ditch around their city and throwing the earth into an embankment on its farther side. This, to the Babylonian gentlemen, was an even greater joke than the first arrival of their foes, for every well-informed citizen knew that in the granaries and reservoirs of the great city were stored sufficient food and supplies to support the whole city for twenty years. There was something very amusing in imagining the young Persian, Cyrus, passing the time from his early youth to middle manhood, picnicking on the plains around the walls of Babylon, while the citizens went about their daily affairs as little disturbed as if swarms of ants were raising ant hills out there upon the great plains far below. It was really a popular recreation to take note of the doings of the Persians, who, as Xenophon tells us, next built tall towers which must have seemed like pygmies viewed from the lofty walls above here and there along the ramparts. These were set upon the trunks of tall palm trees, apparently as if upon stilts, for it is said that Cyrus wished the Babylonians to believe that they meant to provide against sorties. Really, the purpose of these towers was far different. It may be that Cyrus's plan was suggested by his foolish anger against the little river he had crossed. At all events, when the Babylonians had begun to lose interest in the Persians' puny fortresses, and had returned to their daily round of business and amusement, Cyrus took the occasion of a great feasting and banquet within the city to connect his long trench by short canals with the river Euphrates. Through these little canals the waters of the river were led away into the long trench, or, as Herodotus says, into a great reservoir that had been dug by a former queen of Babylon, and hour by hour its depth was decreased. When the waters were sufficiently lowered, so that the Persians could walk in its bed, Cyrus sent a strong force along the course of the river until they came to where it entered beneath the great gates in the walls into the heart of the city of Babylon. In order to distract the attention of the guards, Cyrus had ordered a feigned assault to be made here and there against the walls or gates, and while these attacks were being repulsed, the forces that he had sent along the bed of the river succeeded in forcing their way into the center of the city. As I have said, it was a time of feasting and merrymaking. The Babylonians were taken completely unawares. They were unarmed, and many of them, no doubt, had drunk too much. In a few hours, Cyrus had seized the strong citadels and was in possession of the city. 
Here is the story as Herodotus tells it. The Persians, who had been left for the purpose at Babylon by the riverside, entered the stream, which had now sunk so as to reach up to about midway of a man's thigh, and thus got into the town. Had the Babylonians been apprised of what Cyrus was about, or had they noticed their danger, they would not have allowed the entrance of the Persians within the city, which was what ruined them utterly. But they would have made fast all the street gates which gave upon the river, and mounting upon the walls along both sides of the stream, would so have caught the enemy, as it were, in a trap. But, as it was, the Persians came upon them by surprise, and so took the city. Owing to the vast size of the place, the inhabitants of the central part, the residents at Babylon declared, long after the outer portions of the town were taken, knew nothing of what had chanced. But as they were engaged in a festival, continued dancing and reveling, until they learned the capture but too certainly. The capture of a great city by a trick, or rather by shrewdness against stupidity, shows how ancient sieges were often determined by simple happenings. Though Xenophon tells us that Cyrus had catapults, or arrow-throwing machines, carried on camels, this is doubtful. Another historian, Cetesus, tells us of wooden dummies being put on the walls of the city Sardis when it was besieged by Cyrus. But there seems to have been no general practice of digging mines or of regular attacks in these old times. In fact, much of this early history is a mass of fables. The story of the prophet Daniel and of the writing on the wall is familiar to us all, and there is little doubt that it was this taking of Babylon that followed Belshazzar's feast. To about the same time belonged the taking of Rome by Porcena in 508 BC, when Horatius kept the bridge, though it is now believed the Romans could not keep the city. We read of a siege of Barca a year later, where Herodotus tells how a copper worker detected the enemy's attempts to dig under the walls by using a metal shield as a sounding board. Putting his ear to the shield, laid flat on the ground, he could hear the miners beneath, and thus the mines were discovered. This seems to show mining was not entirely unknown in these days. About twenty years later, Coriolanus, the Roman general, gained his name by the taking of Corioli, which he did by driving back a sally of the enemy and following them so fiercely as to enter the gate with them, as Plutarch tells us. Thus a city was taken, but it is agreed by the authorities that there was little real skill in the art of besieging until after the Peloponnesian War in Greece, and this war really began with the trouble over the city of Plataea which was taken by the Spartans about 100 years after Cyrus's exploit at Babylon. Artillery, or machines for throwing arrows and stones, came into general use first in this war of the Grecian states, but later than this earliest siege. End of section 5